Good morning. This week I was reading an article about how parents sometimes trick kids. Maybe I was thinking of Halloween, all that on my mind. I found myself laughing out loud with these, the creativity and the boldness of parents. I want to share a couple of them because I kind of had a flashback. I can remember riding in the back seat of a car, the station wagon of my family, and my mom knew exactly who misbehaved. And when we asked her how she knew, do you remember? Were you there? I've got eyes in the back of my head. Did your mama lie to you like my mama lied to me? I remember thinking, how in the world does that happen? Because she knew. Of course, a few years, you kind of figure that out. Here's a few of them I want to share. One girl grew up on a farm and was told by her parents that their TV only worked when it rained. (laughs) She said she believed that for far, far too long. A mom told her young daughter that when she lied, the daughter lied, a red spot would appear on the middle of her forehead. The mom said, I knew for sure it worked when she did indeed lie, and then her hand went up to cover her forehead. (laughs) One lady said this, when we went to the store, my mom used to say, every time you touch something, a kitten dies. (laughs) My mom tells my sister that the internet lady turns off the internet at 6 p.m. every night. Most of the dad ones seem to be about driving. My father always said that animals on the side of the road were just taking a nap since the road was warm. (laughs) The rumble strips on the highway are for blind drivers. (laughs) The lady said, it took me seven years to realize. Well played, dad. Dad told me that if you turn, if you left the turn signal, if it stayed on too long, the car would flip over. (laughs) I still get nervous. Or this one, I was told that every person gets 10,000 words per month. If you reach the limit, you couldn't physically speak until the new month began. All my dad had to say was, careful, you're already at 9,000 words. It would shut me right up. I sent that article to my daughter, Marcy. She's a new mom. I thought she'd appreciate those. And she said that Christian had just been reading, her husband had reading an article too. And it, this, the mom said this, oh, talking about getting your kids to eat vegetables, said, oh, this is grown-up food, and so kids aren't allowed to have any, but I guess I can let you try it. Marcy said it was my brother, Tony, her uncle, and if you knew him, you'd, you'd get this, who told her that if you sneezed with your eyes open, your eyeballs would pop out. She said she believed that for way too long. Maybe you had an uncle like that in your family too. Sometimes we hear things as a child, and even as an adult, we remember them, even though we know they're not true. Like you go to to, uh, pop your knuckles, think, I can't do that, I'll get arthritis, even though we know that's not true. Or don't swallow your gum because it takes how many years to digest? Seven? Is that what you heard? Seven? We know that's not true, but even as adults, we don't have a place to spit out your gum. You're thinking, I can't swallow it. (laughs) You know, even though we know better, they just kind of stay with us. The reality is there are certain things that we've just blindly accepted. We heard about them when we were young. Maybe somebody we knew said it and we trusted them. Maybe our culture reinforces these things and we hang on to them. Maybe even pass them on to our children. And we end up spending our lives not popping or cracking our knuckles or not swallowing our gum because we still believe them. But what if it's things that are much more significant? Not these silly things we're talking about. But what if we just believe something because we heard it said or somewhere in our early years 
we just took this in and we accepted it as truth. As you know, Jesus was an amazing teacher. He was a rabbi who taught like no other. If you study the life of Christ, you know he spent a significant amount of time sort of debunking the misunderstandings that were common with people. There was so much misunderstanding about who God was and how he saw us and our, our relationship with him. Think about how over and over again he would say, you have heard that it was said, and he would make the, the statement, but I say to you, and he would share the truth or the reality. Over and over and over again he used that phrase, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, But all of his ministry, he was doing that very thing, these false beliefs about God, about faith, about about mankind that everybody seemed to accept. And he said, but let me tell you how it really is. For the next three weeks, I want us to study a few of these misunderstandings or assumptions or whatever you want to call them that were very prevalent in Jesus' day. And I think because we still pass them on today. Because so many of them focused on the outside, the appearance, the customs, looking at the outside, but they missed the main part, the heart, what really matters, the relationship. Jesus came along and said, I know you've heard this all your life. I know you've believed this ever since you were born or ever since you've been listening, but the kingdom of God is more than just going through the motions. It's more than just having the right appearances. It's more than just the outside. It starts on the inside. In fact, if you don't get the inside right, it doesn't matter what's on the outside. The Sermon on the Mount, the whole theme of that, if you think about it, is that the kingdom of God is sort of an inside-out, upside-down way of living. It's what everybody else thinks about and the way you used to think, but let me tell you how it's going to be in the kingdom of God. But still today, people get tripped over this. As a child, maybe. Or, or a teenager or a young adult when we're still just absorbing these things. And sometimes what sticks with us is that Sunday, well, Sunday meant uncomfortable clothes, maybe going through the motions. And so we learned in our early years, our immaturity, that we just master the look, keep it, keeping up the appearance game. We could memorize Bible verses but still go home and treat our brother like dirt. In our immaturity, we might even gloat over our church attendance and look down on those who didn't go to church. The truth is, God has always looked at what's on the inside. It wasn't that Jesus said, hey, I've got a new way. He was just saying, it's always been this way, even though people mess it up and they've told you the wrong way. Think about it. What God said to Samuel when he was selecting a king, a, a very familiar verse, 1 Samuel 16, 7, do not look on the appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord does, sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. See, this is so important, and maybe the word would even be dangerous, because if we don't mature in our thinking, If we just take whatever it is, whether we were intentionally taught this as a child or we just wrongly uh, assume some things in our immaturity, if we hang on to that, we're going to find ourselves in one or two extremes in our thinking. One is that we're going to have a a self-righteous judgmental spirit. Or two, we're going to be so aware 
of our own sin, we're going to thinking, I'm so messed up. There is no hope for me. The extremes are real. So back in Jesus' day, there were some beliefs that weren't true about God. And so Jesus would spend so much of his teaching saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Or sometimes it was a situation where he would respond, here's the right way of doing this. That instead of looking like you've got it all together, God wants authentic worship. Instead of only observing the religious rituals, God wants a relationship. Instead of acting more righteous than you really are, what God wants from you is to admit your brokenness. That's going to be what we look at today. I put this on the screen. I want you to understand that Jesus sees brokenness differently. Brokenness is not a word that we use much. It's not something we aspire to. When you're putting your resume together, there's not a section, here's how I blew it big time. You don't want people to know those things. Brokenness doesn't work very well in the boardroom. How many of you remember, it's going to date you a little bit, but how many of you may remember uh, television repair shops? Any of you remember those? Yeah. Or maybe you have a radio that was broken and you actually took it and you got it fixed. But some of you who are younger are thinking, I don't know about that. Because we don't do that anymore. Today, we live in a culture that has actually been termed a throwaway culture. When things break, you just throw them away and get you a new one. Now, in all fairness, sometimes the cost of repair is almost the same as a new one. And so that's kind of why we tend to do that. But stop and think for a moment. If we've got this throwaway thinking, if we allow that to permeate all of life, that we don't value repairing or fixing what is broken, We live in that throwaway culture. We throw away broken things. Broken means garbage. But what about broken people? Jesus saw brokenness differently. And as we grow and mature to be more and more like Jesus, we have as our our mission, our theme, our goal to be completely committed followers of Jesus. As we do this and grow in the Lord, then Jesus is going to call us. He's going to challenge us, not just accept what you've always thought or believed or been told, but to listen to him. What does he say? And he's going to challenge us to look at things through his eyes, to see people the way he sees people. Because when Jesus sees broken, he sees beautiful. He sees a new beginning. And there's always hope. William McDonald wrote a book, Lord Break Me. And here's how he opened his book. Usually when someone is broken, when something is broken, its value declines, right? We understand that. It disappears altogether. So broken dishes and broken bottles and broken mirrors are generally scrapped. They're thrown out. Even a crack in the furniture or a tear in the cloth greatly reduces its resale value. We get that. But then he says this. But this isn't the way things work in the spiritual realm. In the world we know if something breaks, the value goes down. But God puts a premium on broken things, especially broken people. When God sees broken, he sees beautiful. And I want for our lesson today to see an example of that. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7. The verses are going to be on the screen, but we're going to look at several verses here. So I want to encourage you to open your Bibles, and you can follow along in your Bible. And we're going to be studying this deeper in our small groups tonight. 
So just be fam uh, familiar with this. And so let's kind of uh, uh, follow along together. Luke chapter 7, beginning verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them would love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased kiss, to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So in Luke 7, Luke tells us how Jesus was invited to the house of Simon, a Pharisee. He was a, a religious leader, and so kind of part of his obligation then to have this rabbi into his house, kind of a, a common courtesy was expected. So Jesus gets invited to Simon's house. But I want you to notice what does not happen. Now, Luke, if you know anything about Luke's gospel, especially compared to the others, Luke is detailed. Luke is the one who tells you things the other ones omit. But there's things that Luke does not share because not that he omitted them, it's because they did not happen. Luke doesn't say that Simon does not want Jesus there, but evidently Simon's heart is not in it. There's no detail about Simon welcoming him warmly. No kind words. In those days, the honored guests would have been at least greeted with a kiss, if not on the cheek, by the hand. But no such greeting happened. There's no mention of Simon making sure his guest's feet were washed. And again, we understand the culture there. Dusty roads, wearing sandals, kind of like you and I would go in and wash your hands before you eat, washing your feet. It was just kind of, it's what you did. And if you didn't have a servant to offer to do that, you would at least provide the water so the people could wash their own feet before they would join in the meal together. But even that didn't happen. And if you especially wanted to honor a guest, you would provide olive oil for them to anoint their head. Not an expensive gift or expense, but it was a courteous, generous, hospitable thing to do. So all these things that were common that you would do as a guest when you had people into your house, none of them happened. No kiss, no feet washing, no head anointing, none of them it's almost like when Jesus came in, Simon ignored him. Didn't even acknowledge that he was there. But then this woman comes in, and things get awkward. Luke calls her a woman of the city who was a sinner. 
You may have studied this before and know that commentaries will share that just that word choice, especially as referred to later in the story, people knew she was a prostitute, kind of a town prostitute. Everybody knew her. They knew of her reputation. This kind of woman, think about it, comes into this dinner party at the house of a religious leader. And people are a bit uncomfortable. What's going on? Why is she here? What's happening? In fact, why is she here is a good question. Why is she here? Why did she go? She wasn't invited. There's no mention of that. Could it be that she had heard about this Jesus? Maybe even heard some of his teaching? That maybe for the first time in her life, there was hope that she had a possibility of getting right with God. So in her brokenness, she shows up at this dinner party. Now get this, this woman would have never been invited. Never been invited, ever, to this kind of gathering. In fact, if anyone should feel uncomfortable in the room, it would be this woman. She would have avoided the house of a religious leader at all costs, but she had to see Jesus. You kind of get that when you read Luke's account of this. She knew people would look at her as broken beyond repair. The Pharisees would see her as a throwaway, if we could use that term. But she knows that's not how Jesus sees her. And what happens next had to catch everybody off guard. It's embarrassing. It's inappropriate. It's awkward, even unacceptable. Jesus is reclining at the table. This woman approaches, stands at the feet of Jesus, yet to be washed. Everybody's quiet. You can imagine some of them watching, thinking, what in the world's going on? Others thinking, I can't even look. She shouldn't even be here. I don't even want to acknowledge her presence. But not Jesus. Somehow, there's a connection there. Maybe a look, maybe a nod, maybe he said something, but she knew it was okay to proceed. And with that, the tears flow. She is so touched. Luke says she begins to kiss his feet. And as the tears of her eyes land on his dusty feet, they become muddy because they've not yet been washed. Didn't have a towel. She's in no place to ask for one. So she lets down her hair. If you've studied this before, you know in that culture, a woman kept her hair up because that was part of dignity and respect. A woman would let her hair down only. It's an intimate thing with her husband. But she lets her hair down to dry his feet. She has this bottle of perfume. Commentaries would explain that that was a, a necessary thing for a woman of her occupation. A little drop here, a little drop there for whoever is coming in next. But she doesn't just put a drop on the feet of Jesus. Luke says she pours out the whole thing, all of it. It's like, this is my savings, this is my livelihood, this is my life. This is all of me. Was it reckless? Was it impulsive? Was it inappropriate? Look at it from Jesus' eyes. That's this whole teachable moment here. It's not so much what he's saying, it's what he's doing. Jesus sees this as beautiful. But not everybody saw that. In fact, I dare say no one else in the room saw that. Look at verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. 
And we know what you do with people who are like that. Isn't that what he's saying? You don't, you're not touched by them. You don't invite them in. You don't interact with them. You keep a distance from them. And this is where Jesus turns everything upside down and inside out. Because the rebuke is not for the woman. It's for the religious leader, Simon the Pharisee. You've got this man who is a religious leader. He's got his whole act together. He follows all the rules. He does everything he's supposed to do. And Jesus rebukes him. And then Jesus turns to this broken mess of a prostitute and commends her. Everything is turned upside down. And Jesus validates this woman and says to her exactly what she needs to hear. Verse 48, your sins are forgiven. And then in verse 50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This broken soul is made whole. So I've got a question for you. If you looked ahead on the outline, you see it already. Which person would you rather be in this story? Which person would you rather be? Now, it's a trick question. I'll go ahead and tell you that up front. It's a trick question. Not which one are you more like, but which one would you rather be? Would you rather be Simon, the well-respected Pharisee, the one who's looked up to by people, has all his stuff together, dresses nice, you'd assume, lives in a nice house, he's nice enough to host this dinner party like this, well-respected, everything is right on the outside, everybody's looking up to him. Or would you rather be this prostitute in this story who is a broken mess, yet experiences the grace and love of Jesus in a very deep way? Now, here's why it's a trick question. Because most of us, if you've been a Christian for a while, we want both, don't we? It's like, don't make me choose. You know, we we want all of what Simon has, and we want to experience the love and the grace of Jesus like the woman did. But Jesus says, nope, it doesn't work that way. Simon thinks, people thinks well of him, got it all together. Our sin problems, we don't want known. And even though you and I have issues, we all know how to put a fake smile on. We all know how to hide them. We all know how to pretend like they don't exist. We know how to project the social media reality that is really far from reality. We want to be that person and yet experience the love and grace of God. And Jesus says it doesn't work that way. That's not the game at all. Jesus wants us to understand if you want to be made whole, you must admit that you're broken. If you want to be made whole, you must admit that you're broken. If you want to know the love and grace of Jesus deeply, if you want to know that kind of value, that kind of love, that kind of measure of that, and here's a freebie. It's on the screen. I hope you know this already, but if not, I want to tell you, we are all broken. We are all broken. And those of you who don't think you are, you're the most broken. Isn't that what we learn from the story? Isn't that what Jesus is teaching us here? This Pharisee is thinking, oh, she should be embarrassed. Who let her in? And Jesus says, no, you should be embarrassed. Because you've got it all wrong. She's finally figured out what's right. The one who gets rebuked for brokenness 
for just being broke is Simon. Simon is broke, but he's not broken. He doesn't acknowledge that he's broke, but he is. This is how broke this guy is. Kind of put it in perspective. He has spent his whole life studying Scripture. By the time he was 12, he would have mastered the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. That was common. That's what you did. This guy would know by heart the 300-plus prophecies of the coming Messiah that the Old Testament shares. This man is a Pharisee, a religious leader. But the Messiah, this Jesus that he spent all of his life studying, is sitting at his table with a cheek that hasn't been kissed and feet that hasn't been washed and a head that has not been anointed. And he's embarrassed that somebody let this woman in. That's how broke he is. He's so broke, but he doesn't even know he's broke. If he knew what kind of woman that is that's touching him, he wouldn't be allowing this. That's the thing about brokenness. The less you see it in yourself, the more you need it. So really, the point of this message today is not so much about uh, brokenness, Because you're already broke. We are all broke. The point is about brokenness is that stop denying it. Stop trying to hide it. Stop pretending like you don't have problems. We all have problems. Instead, that's what the Bible calls repentance. You say, God, my life is a mess. It is a broken mess. Here are the pieces. That's really what this woman has done. And that's the irony of brokenness. We don't, want, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to admit it. We don't want others to see our, our cracks, our brokenness. And yet at the same time, we long for it. Because there's an authenticity there. And we appreciate when someone else, they'll share their brokenness. You think, oh, man, don't you love that? That's the irony of it. The struggle with it. I am broken. You are broken. We are a broken people. Well, how broke are we? We are the people who ignore the hurts of others as long as our needs get met. We are those people who yell at each other in the car on the way to the church. And then we get out and pretend like everything's okay. Act happy, kids. We are those people. We are the people who think God is somehow more impressed because we've come up with a whole list of things that are not in the Bible. And we keep that list and we follow those rules and other people don't. Do you need to go on? We are the people who go into debt to keep up appearances. We are the people who think less of others because they're different from us. We are the people who work 50 hours a week just to prove our worth. We are the people who take the easy way out and go log into a porn site. We're the people who have holes punched into our closet doors that we never want our guests to see. We are the people that yell at our family as if they have no feelings and talk sweet to the clerk at the store that we'll never see again. And we don't see the inconsistency. We are the people who spend hours on social, social media trying to convince people that our lives are somehow better than they really are. I could say more, but there's little ears in the room. We are broken people. And there's no one in here more deserving 
more worthy of God's love or grace than anyone else. So what do we do with our brokenness? Well, if a kid breaks something, they know what to do with it. You hide it. And you hope nobody finds it, right? And if you get asked, you deny it. That's what kids do. Not saying it's right. But you know what? That's what adults do, too. We're just a little more adult about it. We try to hide it. We deny it as well. That's what we do with brokenness. One author said this. We try to numb it. That's why we are the most in debt, most obese, most addicted, most medicated people in human history. That's what happens when you try to hide your brokenness. It doesn't work. That's the bad news. Everybody depressed? Here's the good news. It's the gospel. I put this on the outline. It's on the screen as well. God makes the broken whole through Jesus Christ. God makes the broken whole through Jesus Christ. He knows we're broken. Even if you don't know that there's breaks you have that you're not aware of. God knows it all. He knows what a broken mess we all are. And the good news is God makes the broken whole through Jesus Christ. Is that not exactly what the prophet Isaiah was talking about in that verse we love so much? Isaiah 53 verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. I want to call your attention to two words. If you'd like to take notes, you might write these, underline these in your Bible. Wounds. It means blows. It means bruises. It refers to the blueness that comes from being stricken. Jesus was wounded because of our transgressions. And then that word healed, some versions say whole. It comes from the root word meaning mended, repaired, made whole. Isaiah saying, we are made whole because he was broken. We are healed because he was pierced. And it's only after being broken that we are really able to fulfill what God has in store for us. Think about how we even use the word broke or broken to talk about like a horse. You know, when a horse is wild, it can't be ridden. It can't be used to to pull a, a wagon. It's really of no use other than just to serve himself. When you break a horse, when a horse is broken, now you can put a saddle on it. Now you can ride it. Now you can hitch it up to a cart or a wagon and it's useful. And not only that, ask any horse person. They love their horses. Amazing value to them after the horse is broken. Brokenness is where God does his best work. Let me share another verse. We're going to be studying this more in our small group studies. Jeremiah talks about this, Jeremiah 18, verses 1 through 6. Look at the words here. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. And then notice how God uses this common, what would have been an everyday kind of word picture to explain a profound spiritual truth. Verse 5, And the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, 
like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of God. Jesus doesn't just teach about the truth of God. You've heard it said, but I tell you this. There were times like this day in Simon's house where he lived it, where he showed it, where he demonstrated us. Luke 7 is a great example. So you can hide your brokenness as kind of a tendency of all of us to do and keep pretending like everything is okay. Or you can listen to what God said to Jeremiah. God, like clay in a potter's hand, will you take this broken mess and make me into something new? Jesus wants us to know exactly what he wanted this woman to know. That we're a broken mess. And he knows that. And he's glad that we finally admit that. And there's that look. You've had it with people when you're like, I, I know. You understand me. You get me. And I, I can see that happening between these two. That's repentance. That's what you do to God and you realize, I can't do it on my own. I'm a broken mess and I'm sorry. And then you give your broken mess to God. And he turns it into something beautiful. How many of you ever heard of Kinsigi? I'll put a couple of pictures on the screen. Kinsigi, I think that's how you say it. It is a practice that dates back to Japan in the 1500s. The name means golden joinery or golden repair. Here's what it is. It's an art, really, where you take broken ceramic pieces, bowls, dishes, plates. Instead of like you and I would do when you break something, you try to glue it together and hope that the crack doesn't show, you know, or, or maybe it's in an inconspicuous spot that you can still keep using the dish. This, instead of trying to hide the cracks, they instead put gold. They highlight the cracks. And here's the wonderful thing about this art form is that you could have maybe a very precious piece of, of pottery or, or this porcelain or whatever it is, but once it's broken and then you do this art form and you add the gold and you put it back together, it is worth more. In fact, collectors have been accused of taking a very precious piece and breaking it and then doing this so they can get more money from that original piece of pottery. Kinsigi. Is this not what God does for us? is he takes us, we were created beautiful, but we're broken because of sin, and he takes us in our brokenness, when we admit that, puts us back together, and then like a horse, can be used to serve not just ourselves anymore, but others, the kingdom. And it's a beautiful thing. God says the very things you're most overwhelmed by, that you're embarrassed by, the things you wish were not true, the things you so desperately want to keep a secret, God says, if you let me take that mess, I'll make it into something beautiful, more beautiful and valuable than before. There's so many Psalms, and again, those are going to be in our study guide tonight. But Psalm 147, verse 3, simply says, God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. I asked Marty to lead an invitation song. It's just as I am, and it's got the verse, I come broken. 
I think one of the reasons why Just As I Am has remained kind of a, a mainstay of songs is because we appreciate that line, Just As I Am. Because you admit you are a broken mess. And that's why the words of this new chorus that's been added, I come broken to be mended, I come wounded to be healed, I come desperate to be rescued, I come empty to be filled, I come guilty to be pardoned by the blood of Christ the Lamb, and I'm welcomed with open arms, praise God, just as I am. That's our song. That's our invitation. We're going to stand and sing that in just a moment. And for you, if you are a child of God and you've been hiding from God, pretending, and you're weary of that game, just come clean with him. Maybe for you, that's your own prayer to God. Or if it's something that you need to share with the whole church family, you know what we'll say to you? We too are broken. We understand And God is the only one who can put the pieces back together again. Or maybe for you, God is helping you to understand it's only through him. You can't make it on your own. You can try like Simon, get all the checks, the boxes checked, but you'll never be holy, you'll never be right, you'll never be saved by doing it yourself. You've got to let him wash you clean in baptism, give you a new creation so the Bible calls it, gives you his spirit, and you continue to grow. If in any way we can help or serve you, won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage?